Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I would, uh, as uh, those who've been coming know, last week, uh, I would, Jane and I and, uh, and some other friends uh, were in Madison, Wisconsin for um, some teachings with uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and uh, um, it's always good being in his energy. Uh, and he went through these, uh, these teachings that are very dear to him uh, called the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shanti Deva. And it is, um, it's a, I think it's 8th century uh, Shanti Deva, Deva lived and was a, a great scholar and um, then wrote this treatise on practice that, um, well, it's been a classic since. This is what the Dalai Lama has to say about it. If I have any understanding of compassion and the practice of the Bodhisattva path, it is entirely on the basis of this text that I possess it. So that kind of gets one's attention. He knows a little bit of something about compassion and the fact that he is supposedly the embodiment of the Bodhisattva of infinite compassion. Uh, must have come in with some cellular understanding of compassion. Uh, as he went through the text, and he went through it, um, there's ten chapters in the, in the text, and he would go through, he'd say a, a line, a, a, a couple of lines, and then he'd talk for a while, and then he'd take questions and answers, and then he'd say another line, and, uh, and he'd kind of go through it, and it, it wasn't like line by line, it was just skipping from here to there. It was wonderful because it doesn't even matter what he's saying. It's more his energy field. You can see him smile and light up and get very profound and deep just by his being. There's a transmission there. But it made me want to go in more deeply and uh, and see what this piece of Dharma wisdom has to offer and thought the best way to, to really learn something deeply is to give some talks on it. So this is, you can listen in to my exploration of, of the uh, Shantideva piece. Mm, we can all listen in together. Um, there's a few books that you might check out. This is the book from uh, from the teachings. It was very cool. Everybody who ha- went to the teachings got a, a really nice a shoulder bag, those some coveted the turquoise and over the green or the gold. And you could see your attachments and your you know right there. And and they they gave a number of books, uh, including this uh, guide to the Bodhisattva way of life and uh, middle stages of meditation by uh, Kamala Shila and uh, a few other things. Uh, so there's this is the the Translation by Alan uh, Wallace and Vesna Wallace. There's also this Shambhala edition, A Flash of Lightning in the Dark of Night um, by the Dalai Lama. It was some other teachings that he gave on this, and he takes a few standards and then uh, and then elaborates. Uh, Pema Chodron has... Um, a, a book, No Time to Lose, that I, I want to pick up uh, sometime soon to also see her take on uh, on the Bodhisattva path. She also has a number of CDs uh, on on the Shantideva piece. A um, couple of other things that I'll, I'll be using uh, through tonight and perhaps beyond tonight. Uh, Joseph Goldstein has this little new book that came out, A Heart Full of Peace, that he really beautifully uh, talks about bodhicitta, and, uh, which is what we'll be talking about tonight, and the Bodhisattva path. 
and also his book One Dharma, which is his own exploration into putting Theravadan teachings together with uh, the Mahayana teachings. Um, so I recommend all of those. And also there's a, a treatise or a paper, I should say, that Guy Armstrong put together, really uh, wonderful paper that I'll be drawing on a bit from uh, the first part of the talk tonight. What is a bodhisattva? And uh, it's really good, and I think what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to be seeing Guy tomorrow and ask him if it's okay to post it on the website. Um, so if you'd like to check out his take on the bodhisattva ideal. <clears throat> the first, before I get into the chapter tonight, I want to talk a little bit about the bodhisattva ideal. It's now a common word in our language. What is it? Steely Dan, did they do a song, Bodhisattva? You know, so it's kind of like, I remember when Dharma and Greg came on TV, all of a sudden, oh, I know what the Dharma is, right? At least they know how to spell it, you know. Um, Bodhisattva, this is the Dalai Lama's definition of Bodhisattva. What does it mean by Bodhisattva? Bodhi means enlightenment, like the Bodhi tree. The state devoid of all defects and endowed with all good qualities. Sattva refers to someone who's, who has courage and confidence and who strives to attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Those who have this spontaneous, sincere wish to attain enlightenment for the ultimate benefit of all beings are called bodhisattvas. Through wisdom, they direct their minds to enlightenment, and through their compassion, they have concern for beings. This wish to perfect enlightenment for the sake of others is what we call bodhicitta, and it is the starting point on the path. The Shantideva uh, writing has ten chapters in it, and the first few chapters are about bodhicitta. The, which is called in this book, The Spirit of Awakening, um, bodhicitta, that wish to practice for the benefit of all beings. Um, and the, the whole treatise follows the six perfections in Vajrayana teachings, or Mahayana teachings, there are six perfections, or paramitas, same thing as paramis. In Theravadan, there's ten perfections. Um, and they are, uh, the, the six in the uh, Mahayana teachings are um, generosity, uh, virtue, patience, effort, um, meditation and wisdom, and what the uh, the treatise does is it is it follows those paramis, those perfections. The first three chapters are about generosity. The next two are about virtue, and then there's uh, one each for patience, effort, med uh, meditation, wisdom, and the last chapter is uh, dedication. So first I want to say a few words about bodhisattva as it has developed over the years in, in Buddhism. Uh, you, you hear, if you know the Eightfold Path, you start with wise understanding or right understanding, where you hear the Dharma it's both the beginning of the path and the culmination of, of the path. You hear the Dharma, and probably most everybody here, unless this is very, very new to you and you're just kind of curious, something touches you and you say, wow, okay, this is where, this is where happiness lies. Oh, okay, it's not getting more sooner and then more there's some other path to true happiness. And when you hear it, if it clicks, something shifts in you. Your priorities 
Well, they might shift. At least you know where happiness lies. But then if you decide, I'm going for it, that leads to the next link in the Eightfold Path, sometimes translated as right thought or wise thought. Sometimes it's also translated as a wise intention or wise aspiration, where you say, okay, now I see what it's all about and I'm going for it. I'm facing in this direction. That's a beautiful shift in your life. And it's almost like, you know, once you do that, it's, it's hard to pretend you don't know anymore. As, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, the, the spiritual path is fraught with perils. So think carefully before you start. But once you start, it's best to finish. And there you are just facing in the right direction. But in, in practice, sometimes we don't have, or often we don't have, the lofty goal of full enlightenment. You know, that might just seem like a real stretch for people. I'm curious, how many people do have in their, their hearts the, the yearning to be completely awakened. Just curious. It's not a, wow, that's amazing. Okay. And if you don't, it's absolutely fine. I've gone back, back and forth a number of times in my life where I said, I'm going for it. And at other times, it's like, I don't want to get into this grasping mind. I just want to face in the right. I know that in this moment, there's freedom. And that if I'm continuing to face in the right direction, I just need to take the next step and the next step and the next step and keep on purifying myself and remembering it's right here, right now. So this is not a pass-fail test as far as you know what your intention is. But when you do have that deep desire to fully awaken, if it's for your own freedom, if it's your, your own liberation, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I want to be free. I want to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. But to go one step further and have this aspiration rooted in the fact that you want to purify your heart and your mind for the sake of all beings... This is the bodhi, this is bodhicitta, where you are developing your own practice as a gift to everyone. And it is included, this is the essence of the bodhisattva path. And there are some real great values and, and benefits to that, which we'll get to in a little while. I wanted to mention a little bit about the difference between uh, different schools. In Theravadan, the way of the elders, what we the teachings that, that are most taught in Spirit Rock, uh, we use the Pali Canon, supposedly the words of the Buddha and the, the earliest teachings. And then as the teachings developed, oh, about 600 years, five or 600 years after the Buddha started the Mahayana teachings as Buddhism traveled to China and Japan and Korea. Uh, and then... Um, I think it was about, oh, when was Padmasambhava? Anybody know when Padmasambhava was, uh, was living? Eighth century, was that? Uh, that they, they traveled to Tibet and became Vajrayana teachings. Now, the Bodhisattva is not really mentioned or mentioned very little in the Pali Canon. It's mentioned as the Buddha became a Buddha. He he was referred to as the Bodhisattva, somebody on his way to become a Buddha. And it talks about his life just before he was, uh, he took birth as the Buddha, as Siddhartha Gautama, in, in some heaven realm. And then he came down and became, um, did his, his journey. But it's very little mentioned there. Even though compassion is mentioned, it's not mentioned as a reason to practice for the benefit of all beings. 
A few places that compassion is mentioned, of course, Karuna, compassion, one of the Brahma Viharas is, a, is, is mentioned throughout. But when the, the Buddha talks, says to his um, first 60 arhats, wander forth, O bhikkhus, for the welfare of the multi- multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of devas and humans. Let, two, not, let not two go in the same way. He's saying, out of compassion, teach. And that was what motivated him as well as he sat under the tree, even though at first he was a little reluctant to teach. Oh, what if they don't understand? He said, it would be a big vexation to me. But... So he wasn't practicing with that bodhisattva ideal, at least consciously. And then the Brahmin god came down and said, see what you can offer with your teachings. And then he was moved out of compassion to spend the rest of his life teaching. But it's not, it wasn't his initial motivation. Uh, Bodhisattva in the Pali canon is somebody who makes the vow to go all the way to full Buddhahood, which is very, very rare in the, in the Theravadan teachings. You, can all, you can't have more than one Buddha at a time, at least in these teachings. And not only that, but all the, the teachings have to die out before there's a next Buddha. So uh, if you take a vow to become a Buddha, which is the Bodhisattva vow, you are postponing your own enlightenment for a long time, right? So that's where some Theravadans say, you know, think twice about this. What are you doing? You will not have full enlightenment because if you become an arhat, you can become enlightened as an arhat, which, you know, can happen... It has happened many, many times in over the last 2,500 years. But to do all the perfections and end up as a Buddha, that's a different, different story. So after the, um, after the Buddha, about 100 years after the Buddha, uh, after there was harmony for us many, many decades, then, then people started to dispute what the teachings were, and the, the teachings splintered into 18 different schools. Mm. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, why can't they just get along? There they, there they are, you know, saying, I love the Dharma, I love the truth. But mine is better than yours. You know, sound familiar? We've been doing this for a long time on this planet. Um, and then um, uh, they, there came the idea of um, the Jataka tales where you, they follow all the lives of the Buddha before he became uh, the Buddha through many, many I think there's 550 Jataka tales. And that was the first where they said, oh, there's this evolution happening. And also, that was the first time where you hear the story of when the Buddha first made that vow, which was when the previous Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, existed eons before. And there was the, the incarnation of this man, Sumedha, who was so moved by Dipankara Buddha that he made the vow, I'm going to become a Buddha. And it said in the, the story that Dipankara Buddha could sense that vow and he, and he said, this man will be a Buddha eventually. And that was the start of Gautama Buddha's evolution. It's, that's where you first start hearing about that whole journey. 600 years after the Buddha, the Mahayana school, school started happening, where instead of the idea of uh, an arhat, which seemed kind of um, self-centered, compassion was was elevated. Not just loving kindness, but compassion. That became the highest ideal. And so they said, no, don't go for an arhat. Go for a Buddha. Go for Buddhahood. And instead of noticing the three characteristics, emptiness became the, 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 the great um, 
um, understanding, deep understanding. And things changed a bit uh, because instead of one Buddha, eons from the next, there was a shift in seeing, oh, you can be a Buddha there can be many Buddhas at the same time, which made it a little bit more accessible. You weren't promising to never become enlightened if, or to become enlightened after somebody else becomes a Buddha. Then you've got to wait more and even longer. It's like, okay, there can be more Buddhas. So this is something I want to aspire to, to have the complete perfection of, um, of the heart. And instead of the four stages of enlightenment, they devise the system of the ten bhumis, where you go through a different progression and you say, okay, it's not like I'm a once returner or a non returner or you never come back. It's like you go through a different graduated path. So they change things and becoming, going for Buddhahood was a little bit more in the realm of possibility. At that point, those who saw that noble path of compassion looked down a little bit on those who were just going for their own enlightenment, for uh, arhat, fully enlightened being. And that's where the different vehicles came in. The yana means vehicle. There was the mahayana, which means great vehicle, as opposed to the hinayana, which means lesser vehicle, lesser vehicle being somebody who just is out for themselves, according to the Mahayana uh, idea. And uh, lesser vehicle is, it? is an, a nice translation of the word hina in the Pali English Dictionary, meaning of that word inferior, low, poor, miserable, vile, base, abject, contemptible, despicable. Okay. So when somebody says, um, oh, you're Hinayana, it's not like they're saying, oh, how wonderful, you know, at least if they know those terms, lesser vehicle, greater vehicle. And then when the teachings came to Tibet, they were known as the Vajrayana, the supreme vehicle. And there, I remember this guy um, uh, wrote this little haiku, lesser vehicle, greater vehicle, all vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And uh, over the many years, there was this superiority, inferiority, Idea. We just came from the teachings, and uh, we, we uh, Jane and I, on our way back, we we met a, a Rinpoche who uh, it was clear he had come from the teachings, and I he looked familiar, and then he said, "Oh yeah, I recognize you from the teachings," and uh, he was in his street clothes on his way to do some teachings in uh, on the west coast, and this guy's like pretty um, pretty well. Uh, Respected. I looked up on on the website, and he's been teaching for a number of years. And when he said, "So, you know, what's your practice? Or are you from?" and I said, "Oh, I'm Theravada." And and he kind of scrunched up his face. He said, "Hmm, lesser vehicle, mm, like that, you know." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> but actually, over the uh, over the course of last several, uh, last decade or two, several decades, there's been a real shift in openness between the different traditions. Uh, And uh, we have some wonderful teachers, uh, Vajrayana teachers coming to Spirit Rock. Sokni Rinpoche is a teacher for many of our teachers and teachers at Spirit Rock. Um, And uh, many, uh, many of the teachers have taken Tibetan teachings as well as many of the other practitioners. And the, um, uh, the, the Dalai Lama is, is very well connected with, uh, with our community. And we, are, we hosted a, a conference with all the three traditions. And you see uh, Ajahn Amaro goes to the teachings and has taken bodhisattva vows along with, you know, Joseph has and I have and 
Guy Armstrong obviously has Guy and Sally. Um, Anam Rinpoche, who, uh, who's been here, we have a really wonderful connection, a deep respect for, uh, for what we do. So that's starting to break down a bit. Um, but the bodhisattva, the, this bodhisattva vow, which we took at the end of the teachings, um, after you go through these four or five, four days of teachings, he said, okay, are you ready? And basically, and then you take the bodhisattva vow. Um, and once you take it, you are saying, okay, I'm on this path, not just for myself, but for the benefit of all. And Guy has some uh, uh, beautiful thoughts about the, the different benefits of taking the bodhisattva vow that in our own practice, how many people, anyone has taken the Bodhisattva vow? Just a few. It, it moves us from being self-centered, obviously, to include all beings in our practice, as it's defined. But that when you start having compassion as your motivation, it, uh, it opens up a quality of generosity and it softens the heart. It's not like, okay, when am I going to do it? It's like, I'm doing this as a gift to everyone. And it can sustain our motivation in the hard times. You say, oh gosh, you know, I don't know if I can go to the next sitting. Who wants to do that? You know, Let me just take it easy. And you say, I'm doing this for the benefit of all. Or if you're going through a rough time in your own personal life, then it becomes a source of... Everything is part of your bodhisattva training. You're a bodhisattva in training, and you go through really hard times. Okay, I'm doing this to learn as much as I can, not only for myself, but to be of service for everyone else. So it sustains us through hard times. And it keeps your practice from being complacent, no matter where you've arrived, even if you have a very deep experience of emptiness, until you're fully cooked, if you've taken that vow, you want to keep on going and not just say, okay, this is cool, I've, I've kind of got what I want, it's nice, I want to go all the way for the sake of everyone. Okay. So the start of the... Uh, Shanti Deva treatise is this um, aspiration for awakening for the benefit of all. Bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. C I T T A. Bodhi, B O D H I, awakened. And Chitta, C I T T A, the C is a C H sound. Um, is refers to either heart or mind. Sometimes people point in Asia to their, their heart and they say, oh, my mind is, uh, is heavy today. Or uh, It's the same. There's no difference. So you can say awakened heart or awakened mind. And here's, uh, I'll read a few passages from this first chapter, which is on the benefit of, of bodhicitta, or the benefit of the spirit of awakening in this translation. By the way, Shanti David doesn't pull any punches. It's, he's pretty hardcore here, so I'll, I'll see about uh, how it comes out in the translation. Mm. First, he talks about the, uh, after giving homage, he talks about the opportunity to practice, the preciousness of this opportunity. This leisure and endowment being able to practice, which are so difficult to obtain, have been acquired, and they bring about the welfare of the world. If one fails to take this favorable opportunity into consideration, how could this occasion occur again? This is one of the central tenets, the preciousness of a human birth, not to waste our time. This virtue is perpetually ever so feeble, my own capacity to maintain virtue. It's, it's a, it's, he's not 
he's not into big self-esteem, by the way. He's not building it, you know, look how wonderful I am. It's like often, I'm, I, I'm so lowly, but I'll do my best. That's the spirit. This virtue, perpetually ever so feeble, while the power of vice is great and extremely dreadful, if there were no spirit of perfect awakening, no bodhicitta, what other virtue would overcome it? Just as lightning illuminates the darkness of a cloudy night for an instant, in the same way, by the power of the Buddha, occasionally people's minds are momentarily inclined towards merit. He says, don't miss that when it comes. Make use of it. When the spirit of awakening has arisen, in an instant, a wretch who is bound in the prison of the cycle of existence is called a child of the sugatas, of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and becomes worthy of reverence in the worlds of gods and humans. So in one moment, it's like amazing grace. You know, I see it, and you change from being a wretch to a child of the gods once you have that aspiration to not only awaken, but awaken for the benefit of all. Just as a plantain tree decays upon losing its fruit, so does every other virtue wane. But the tree of the spirit of awakening perpetually bears fruit one does, and does not decay and only flourishes. He says other virtues, you can perform a, a generous act or you can um, express your kindness. You know, nice. But fleeting. And there we are back in our you know, greed, hatred, and delusion, he would say. But if you have that deep aspiration to benefit all, it keeps on bearing fruit as you keep it in your consciousness. A little bit more. There are two kinds of um, of bodhicitta. In brief, the spirit of awakening is known to be of two kinds. The, the spirit of aspiring for awakening and the spirit of venturing toward awakening. So it's one thing to have this vow, have this vision, and then it's another to apply it and say, I'm actively going to live my life this way. Although the result of the spirit of aspiring for awakening is great within the cycle of existence, it is still not like the continual state of merit of the spirit of venturing. It's one thing to have the idea. That's a good idea. But to embody it and completely live from that place keeps on nourishing and bearing fruit. Hmm. That from the time that one adopts the spirit with an irreversible attitude for the sake of liberating limitless sentient beings, from that moment on, an uninterrupted stream of merit equal to the sky constantly arises even when one is asleep or distracted. Isn't that nice to know? The Tathagata himself, that's the Buddha, cogently asserted this in the Subhara some other treatise, for the sake of beings who are inclined toward the lesser vehicle. So he, was, he says that the Buddha himself was exhorting those in another Mahayana treatise, go for something greater than the lesser vehicle. How does this unprecedented and distinguished jewel whose desire for the benefit of others, how does this unprecedented and distinguished jewel whose desire for the benefit of others does not arise in others, even for their own self-interest, how does it come into existence? It's so rare. How does it come into existence? If reverence for the Buddhas is exceeded Merely by an altruistic intention, that is, 
it's if you're performing a generous act, that's better than having reverence for the Buddhas. How much more so by striving for the complete happiness of all sentient beings? I'll just read a little bit more. I pay homage to the bodies of those in whom this precious jewel of the mind has arisen. I go for refuge to those who are minds of joy towards whom even an offense results in happiness. So that's, that's the end of the first chapter. How rare it is when you think about it. I was just talking with, with Jane earlier uh, before we came here about um, we were talking about just this last week that uh, that very confused man in Tennessee who went into the uh, Unitarian Church and uh, two people were killed and I think eight others wounded. Why? Because he didn't like people different from him because the Unitarians promoted honoring and respecting gays and people of color and uh, all different groups. It was so abhorrent to him that he had to do something and created all this violence and destruction. That's an extreme, but we see this all the time. Isn't it amazing how other is usually equated as enemy or somebody to be wary of, somebody to not trust. So this bodhisattva ideal, this bodhicitta, this vow to aspire to your own awakening for the benefit of all is so radical. It's, it turns all of that on its head. And it turns us from being contracted and small to having this open heart that include all. It's a very potent aspiration. In uh, Joseph's Joseph's uh, book, the, A Heart Full of Peace, he he talks about having this aspiration. It might seem so lofty, especially sometimes the bodhisattva ideal is about vowing to save all sentient beings. Some people think of it, take it as, as a, the idea of postponing your own enlightenment till all beings are free. Others not postponing, and Guy makes the point, there are some who take it who are postponing their enlightenment, some that are saying, okay, let's all do it together, and some that are saying, I will become free and, and keep on coming back because bodhisattvas in the, uh, in the Vajrayanic tradition keep on coming back for the benefit of all. Um, but it seems so lofty to be here for, to save all sentient beings or be for the benefit of all beings, that sometimes people think, oh, I, I can't go there. Come on, you know, I just, you know, just want to have a little peace of mind inside for myself. But Joseph makes the point that it's more planting the seed, planting that intention that is the magic ingredient you're not there looking at your watch and saying, well, you know, am I behind schedule? Is it happening yet? Or I just blew it again. I can't believe it. Yeah, what some kind of bodhisattva I am. You know, all that does is, is make you feel small, get you discouraged, feel like it's, it's a hopeless cause. Uh-uh, not like that. Just to keep on coming back to that intention just like in metta practice, when you're doing metta practice and you're, you're saying, may, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, even if it seems like it's nowhere in sight, you're planting those seeds in every moment that in their own time bear fruit. So if you think of this as an ongoing 
reminder of what really matters to you. It keeps you facing in that direction and keeping your commitment. So when you fall off, you just kind of straighten your course. It's a course adjustment. Mm. I'll just uh, actually just read a, one more passage and then we can open up to some, some questions. This is a, a wonderful book I, I highly recommend uh, called Natural Great Perfection by uh, Nyoshil Kempo, who was a, a very important teacher for Joseph and Sharon and uh, a number of our beloved teachers. We are not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation. The natural outflow of solitary meditation or prayer is spontaneous benefit for others. Isn't that so when you're around somebody who's, who's gotten centered and worked on themselves? You kind of feel their energy field. It's like the rays of the sun, rays which spontaneously reach out. This good heart, pure heart, vast and open mind, this innate bodhicitta, it's not something foreign to us, as we well know, yet it is something we could relate to more, cultivate, generos uh, generate, and embody. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So I uh, just want to ask before we open up to a conversation, um, just reflect on what your practice would be like, whether or not you take a vow to save all sentient beings, what your practice looks like if more and more you see it as a gift to everyone you know. You have, might, might have a hard time sitting, you know, oh, I just can't, I just can't sit, you know, I, my mind is too scattered, you know. And if you have trouble giving that gift of meditation to yourself, just imagine when you see, oh, I'm giving this, I'm sitting as a gift to everybody in my life because they do benefit from it and they will appreciate even if they don't know that you're doing it. What if that became part of your practice? And I want to offer a, a little practice that a guy has at the end of his article that we could just explore. It's not taking a bodhisattva vow, but it's bringing this bodhicitta um, to mind and heart. So just close your eyes for a moment. He suggests you might begin your sittings with, um, with this recitation. It's from the Tibetan tradition. And you don't have to take it right now. I'll read it first, and then you can just see how it feels. From now until becoming enlightened, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit of generosity and other virtues, may I achieve Buddhahood to benefit all beings. Now I'll just say it slowly. From now until becoming enlightened, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. 
by the merit of generosity and other virtues, may I achieve Buddhahood, complete freedom. May I achieve Buddhahood to benefit all sentient beings. This might not be a, a foreign thought to you. You might even say this yourself in one form or another when you sit, but just for a moment as you're inside, see if you can connect with that aspiration more than just a recitation that you're truly practicing for the benefit of all. And that more than even the aspiration, that the application in your daily life is the context in which your Dharma practice is held. If we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and become beneficial to others through contact with this good heart, which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So we can take some time, and actually now we have this working, the uh, wireless mic. So any comments, questions, thoughts about, about this? Maybe how you would take it into your practice on another level, or anything that comes to mind. We'll be going in a few minutes, and uh, if you're, if it's possible, it'd be great if you could uh, just stay until we end. Thanks. So my observation is that if we believe in interconnectedness, mm-hmm. then we've already, then there's there's nothing more that we need to do. It's not there's nothing beyond that. If we if we already accept that we are all connected to begin with, mm-hmm. then then it, then thinking that there's more that we have to do. Is, isn't really true. We've already done it. So it's not an extra step. It's like just part of seeing the way things really are. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if interconnectedness is a... Uh, I mean, I know Thich Nhat Hanh is the one who teaches that, and I'm wondering if it's part of his school or if it's something that's well accepted in all schools of Buddhism. Or Yeah, well, certainly in the, um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's the... There's different different levels of reality. There's the nirmanakaya, which is the, the embodied reality, and the the the, the more essency 
kaya is the dharma kaya, the ground of being where we all, everything is springing from that. Or we all meet in the unconditioned as well. Um, and what you're pointing to actually is, uh, is something um, that I wanted to bring up a little bit next week, which um, is the fact of who is it that is, that is aspiring for the benefit of all? Because as you, as you see through this sense of self, you know, can you say, I am a bodhisattva and let go of a sense of self? You know, hey, check it out. You know, you see, I'm really a good bodhisattva, right? You just, there is a paradox there. Actually, uh, Ajahn Amaro has a really good article in, uh, I think it's the current tricycle, just about this paradox. And uh, that's what I wanted to go into a little bit next week. And uh, but you're you're onto something there. That's the that's the the thing that that trips up some Theravadins uh, because when they think, oh my goodness, I will I'm going to postpone my own enlightenment for for eons. But on a deeper level, when you see just what you're pointing to, there is no separation. Um, that conundrum can vanish. Sometimes I wonder if just um, personally, as sort of part of the fruits of my practice, if I I feel kinder and um, more patient and just have better relationships, even some of the ones that were difficult in the past. Sometimes I wonder if that's like being a bodhisattva. Just, you know, people around me, are uh, somehow my relationships are better. And so, and especially for people that have known me for a long time and have known me when maybe I wasn't so kind and compassionate. If that's kind of like being a bodhisattva. I mean, well, uh, it's it certainly if you have the I- idea that you're, um, as you're growing, you're of more benefit to yeah. others. Yeah. But um, it's it's a little bit different. And Guy makes this this point. You know, he says sometimes the word bodhisattva is is used to describe somebody who is um, serving selflessly. Or just really a, a generous person, or you know, doing good and and helping those around them. However, when you really go to the the bodhisattva ideal, you're talking about awakening, complete awakening for the benefit of all, and that's the the added upping the ante. You know, this is not just oh, I'll be a better person and everybody will will. Benefit, which is wonderful, you know, I, that's as a good a reason to develop yourself as, as any. Well, it spurs you on. It spurs you on, <laughs> but when you go to the point and you say, "Okay, I'm I'm there's, I'm not holding back. I'm going to go completely until the end, whenever that is." That's that's a different level, and and it really juices your practice. It's like, okay, I'm in the game. Go all the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's right behind you. Um, when I was in Seattle, I went to uh, Zendo a couple times. And uh, I just, having next no idea about uh, uh, Buddhism or Zen or anything. And they were, they were like really friendly people. And I just, you know, sat with them for, you know, like a couple times. And mm-hmm. it was sitting and then chanting. And then and the last chant was the Bodhisattva vow. And it was, it was a, a different formulation than the one that you gave it. You know, the beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. And, and I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool. That's like, that's, I loved like the paradox of it. And listening to, you know, you talking about like the Dalai Lama saying to a room full of people, are you ready to take it? It's like, how could they just be 
chanting that at the end, you know, just sort of like you say the Star Spangled Banner and not really think about it. And what, it, it, have I now taken the Bodhisattva vow and didn't realize what I was doing? Or I mean, it, it just seems like such a different approach. I was just wondering if you could like shed a little light on that. Like I know it's a very different tradition, but it just it's really weird <laughs> to me. <laughs> just just the, the the difference. It just seems like a very it's like a disconnect. Well, if I hear you right, there it's one thing to just say say it as a chant. Mm -hmm. It's another to put your whole heart into committing to it. Mm -hmm. And so you know you can you can chant. You can chant anything, and it can be it can be a song, mm -hmm. or it can be a deep aspiration inside, and connecting to that place that really has that strong intention. It just gives it life. Mm -hmm. So it's um, on whatever level, as you're as you're you know, if you're the people in in the zendo chant, you know, that's it's a practice. It has its own value. Mm -hmm. But when they do the bodhisattva stuff, and they they have all kinds of rituals, so they 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 had uh, they went around to every person, all the thousands of people. They had all these water this, these water um, uh, cups set up, and you each get a, a drop of uh, a spoonful of water, and you go through this ritual, and you cover your uh, you have a sash over your eyes because uh, of the uh, the blindness of the calaces and they go through a whole ritual that empowers the the thing so you can, on any level you can empower the key is to get in touch with it in your heart and this is what the the Dalai Lama says okay so I'll give you a little bit of cut you a little slack I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. So... We can inspire ourselves with our own commitment. And we can end now with a, a little loving kindness and then sharing our merit for the benefit of all. Just feeling inside, feeling your heart, that sincere place that really wants to wake up, really wants to love. The goodness right inside. the love that you are. And wish yourself well. May I see deeply into the true nature of things. May I see all the love that's inside know that's who I am, and share it well. May I awaken to my true nature and know the highest peace. And may I do this for the benefit of everyone in my life, and ripple out to be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings know the highest peace. May they see their true nature. May they share their love well. May they be completely free and may our coming here together be of benefit and be for the benefit of all beings everywhere may all beings be happy
Thank you very much. Have a great week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.